um, I think the purpose of it was to to show people what is very difficult to see. Um, for example, those outside of Japan who have never been to Japan, um, I think to purchase the book, they'll be able to see in 90 odd photographs what has taken me about two years of rushing around and knocking on doors and having a lot of difficulty gaining access. They'll see it all in one place. Um, so it's very informative. And also that I think the photography is quite quite a high standard. So it's a very enjoyable, enjoyable book. And also for those within Japan who are sumo fans, it's, it's very, very hard for them to gain access to, example, for example, to the dressing room of the Kokukikan Stadium, mm-hmm. the panels, to the eating areas where the sumo wrestlers um, eat above the stables. Um, so it's just like an easy way to gain access to sumo. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Japan Forward's Sports Talk podcast. Joining us today is a special guest all the way from Thailand. Lord K2 is an accomplished photographer, also known as David Sharabani. How are you doing today, uh, Lord? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on your show. And thank you for calling me Lord. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll mostly say Lord K2. Is that... That would be yeah. preferable, right? Yeah, Lord K2. That's my chosen name as a photographer. Okay. Do you have a story behind that or what What led you to deciding that? I'm yeah. curious. Um, when I, I got to Argentina um, about 10 years ago and I decided to change, at the time I was trading stocks in the stock market, and I decided that I wanted a, a change from that. So I started painting... Um, art on the streets, mm-hmm. graffiti um, and stencils. And um, I didn't want to tag my name as David Sharabani. So I quickly thought of a name. And um, I thought uh, at the time I was watching K1 martial arts. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm, I like the sound of K2. So I chose the name K2. And then um, People were trying to find me on the internet, but they couldn't find me because K2 is also the name of a of a mountain and a drug. So I thought, hmm, maybe I'll have a, a more specific name. Um, and then I thought of, um, I thought, what can I add to K2? And then I realized that the, the street artists around me, they were kind of... Um, they saw me as a lord in a sense, um, that they were often full of tattoos and piercings and they drink a lot of alcohol and do drugs. And I was more clean cut mm-hmm. and I was British and they were South American. Um, so I thought, Lord K2, I just liked the way it sounded. So that's what I called myself. And I've used it ever since uh, as a photographer as well. So you, you had a very, you had more of a, uh, kind of standard uh, career in the past uh, working on working in business and, and your more artistic side has been shown the last 10 years or so you talking yeah. about doing street art and mm-hmm. are you still involved in painting and, and doing uh, visuals with your, with your hand without, you know, without equipment, digital equipment. Um, 
No, I, I enjoyed my stint painting. Um, as much as I enjoyed it, I realized that instead of standing in front of a, a canvas or a wall, mm -hmm. I'd much rather be with a camera. Okay. Because I, I like to be on my feet. I, li I like to be around people. And I love the aspect of timing. You know, for me, like photography in a way, because uh, now I've got a really bad shoulder injury. So that was 10 years ago. And that's partly why I started doing art um, as opposed to trading stocks and doing sports, which kind of balanced my life out. Um, I just feel like for me, photography in a way is like a sport. Catch, capturing that decisive moment is, is often what I look for. And I just prefer it to painting on walls. Okay. So timing is really everything with trying to get your signature shot. Absolutely. My shots tend not to be posed. And um, I enjoy the, the timing element, capturing that moment that is never repeated. Okay. Well, let's take a step back here for a minute, Lord K2, and let people know that you have produced several books before the upcoming Sumo book we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, you've you have sort of a signature style, I think, in capturing the urban landscape or the geographical landscape of an area. Um, mm -hmm. You have you have published Street Art Santiago, Tokyo Graffiti, Street Art Tel Aviv, and Street Art NYC. Mm -hmm. So just briefly tell us about those projects. Uh, what do you enjoy about doing those? And how did they help you in preparing to to write a book and photograph a book about sumo? Mm -hmm. um, well, since I was doing street art for, for a while, um, and I, I just love to walk around the streets of, of Buenos Aires and mm -hmm. Santiago, Chile, and, and admire all the, all the street art, I really wanted to document it because of its ephemeral nature. And at the time, there weren't so many people photographing street art. And when I'd see um, beautiful pieces tagged over, I think it's, it's such a shame because the, the pieces are often so intricate. Um, so I just wanted to preserve them. Um, and then I, I decided to go to, South, to Santiago in Chile. There's never been a documentation of street art in a book form in Santiago, so I decided to produce a book. It took about two years. And um, the same with Tokyo. There was never a street art book in Tokyo. Um, Tokyo was a little tricky as opposed to Santiago. Santiago had a lot of street art all over the place, so I spoiled for choice. In Tokyo, there, there, there isn't so much. So when I started, I didn't know if I'd be able to photograph enough murals um, in order to proceed with the book. But I just about managed to have enough, and then I produced a beautiful book in Tokyo. And then, um, yeah, I did one on Tel Aviv and one in New York. In, in both cities, I was spoiled for choice for uh, street art. Mm -hmm. So when, when, when on a calendar, on a, on a, just on a timeline, when did you photograph the um, street art book on Tokyo? Did it overlap with your sumo project? Yes. 
um, it was at the time where I was struggling to get permissions and I was struggling to get access to photographs. Mm -hmm. I was so frustrated. Um, and I booked my accommodation with Airbnb and mm -hmm. I just, I just wanted to use my camera and I thought to myself, right, there's no one stopping me from photographing the streets. Mm -hmm. So I just started documenting the streets while I was awaiting permissions um, for the sumo okay. book. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll um, revisit that topic in a, in a little bit about how you navigated the bureaucracy and all the different, uh, you know, levels of um, permission. We'll get to that in a little bit, but what, what picked your interest in pursuing a photography book about sumo? And we'll tell people the book is actually called Sumo. So they, they can't forget the title. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, basically, I, I wanted to know more about the industry. I was always fascinated by the Sumo world. And I understood it was very difficult to gain access behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And then I thought to myself that if I, if I decide to do a, 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 a photo documentary, that will allow me access. And um, and I also felt that the, the general public, mainly outside of Japan, would be very interested as to what goes on behind the scenes. So I thought the book has a strong market. And um, and secondly, I was, I, was, I was also up for the challenge. Being so difficult to access um, made it more, made me more curious about why it was difficult to access. Um, yeah, it was mainly for those reasons that I did the, the book. Before you before you uh, began shooting sumo and really getting involved with that project, you had previously been a Muay Thai photographer, mm -hmm. even in an official capacity for the World Muay Thai Council. What is that council? Like how, how much involvement does it have outside of Thailand? And how did a martial art, sort of a you know combat discipline, help you get your mind ready to focus on sumo? Um, the World Muay Thai Council is an association. There's a few associations in Thailand that promote mm -hmm. um, sporting events. So I, I, I photograph for them and also IFMA, the International Federation of Muay Thai Amateur. Mm -hmm. um, and they're an international organization. And they've recently been um, actually accepted uh, as an Olympic sport. And also, I think sumo has been accepted potentially as an Olympic sport. Um, I think with regards to your questions as to how did it prepare me, I, I, Muay Thai is an extremely fast sport, extremely difficult to photograph, to capture that moment in the ring. Um, so having spent around five years documenting Muay Thai, it really made it much easier to photograph the sumo wrestlers who move in a much slower manner. Hmm. How much slower is it? I think three three to four times slower it's a hell of a lot slower because okay more type boxes they can throw maybe six blows per second okay yeah extremely quick um where sumo wrestlers it's not it's not about the the blows per second it's more about the weight and the, the tactical maneuvers so it's, mm -hmm. it's 
different. Okay. Growing, growing up, uh, I, 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 maybe this is correct. Did you grow up your entire life in England, in London? Yes, most of my life. Okay. So as a younger, as a younger man, as a teenager, perhaps as a student, did you ever, were you aware of sumo existing? Did you watch it in any form or see it in mass media? Yeah. The first time I saw sumo was on channel four. I was around 16 years old. And Mm -hmm. um, at the time we only had four channels. So you tend to spend more time looking at each channel and Mm -hmm. I clicked on channel four and I, I, it was the first time I came across sumo and it was, I was kind of curious to, to watch some of it. And, um, the, the, the wrestler that caught my attention is Kanishki. Now at the time he was the biggest wrestler of all time. Um, I think he weighed around 287 kilograms. And um, he was just enormous and so fat. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to watch. And I really enjoyed the tactical battles because he would try to dispose of the wrestlers by throwing them out the ring, while the other wrestlers, usually a lot smaller, would try to knock him off balance. Mm-hmm. And I used to love to watch his bouts. And then I'd I, I, I wait up to watch the... The, the next, like every day, I'd watch as much as I can. And um, it was while waiting for him that I watched the other wrestlers. And then I just began to enjoy the whole atmosphere of sumo, the ceremonies, um, the costumes. And I just loved everything about the sport. But in no time, they stopped showing it on television. And um, then I had, it was the pre internet days, I had no access to, to sumo, but I, I did, at the time, I did tell myself that I must go to Japan to watch it. So you were, you were age 16 then. Um, around 16. Yeah. Around 16. Um, how many years later, if you want to share, uh, roughly how many years ago was that? That was around, if my math is good, around uh, 34 years. Okay. Yeah. So more than three decades. Um, took me a long time. Absolutely. Do you remember... Do you remember, uh, David, why um, why Sumo was on for, was it one tournament and then it was off? Was it a promotional event or maybe one year they started, um, like, uh, you know, having it like sub-licensed or, you know, this, any idea behind that? I I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't understand why they stopped showing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the, there wasn't sufficient viewers. I really enjoyed it. Friends of mine who watched it loved it, um, but I'm sure it's to do with the with the ratings. Mm. What time of day or what time of night was this? Did you when you first came across this? Did you see Sumo on TV on Channel Four? Uh, it was a long time ago, so I can't recall exactly. But I remember it was it was nighttime. Okay, it was nighttime. It, Maybe. 8, 9, or 10 p.m. It was okay. such a time ago, yeah. And was the um, was the highlights uh, reported in English? In English, yeah. Okay. Very good commentary. So that's... And there was a lot of inter- information as to what was going on, which was very helpful. Okay. Well, thank you for those memories. I appreciate it. Um, and also, it's interesting that that made such an impact on you, 
watching it and all these years later, we're talking about something that happened when you were, you know, a teenager. Yeah, absolutely. In those days, there was far less access to information. So we we didn't see much of what was going on in, in Asia, in Africa, in South America. So I was thirsty to know what was going on. Also, I remember seeing uh, in National Geographic, um, I think I was bit younger, maybe 10 years old, the, the Shaolin monks in China. And I was just amazed what these guys can do. And I also ended up 30 years later going to the Shaolin monastery in, in Denfeng in, in Henan province, um, based on the documentary I saw 30 years before. In in your in your in your humble opinion, what do you think your book Sumo has accomplished? Um, I think the purpose of it was to to show people what is very difficult to see. Um, for example, those outside of Japan who have never been to Japan, um, I think to purchase the book, they'll be able to see in 90-odd photographs what has taken me about two years of rushing around and knocking on doors and having a lot of difficulty gaining access, they'll see it all in one place. Um, so it's very informative. And also that I think the photography is quite, quite a high standard. So it's a very enjoyable, enjoyable book. And also for those within Japan who are sumo fans, it's, it's very, very hard for them to gain access to, example, for example, to the dressing room of the Kokukikan Stadium, mm -hmm. the panels, to the eating areas where the sumo wrestlers um, eat above the stables. Um, so it's just like an easy way to gain access to sumo. Mm -hmm. was, it, was it your idea or somebody at the publishing company's idea to make it bilingual? It was my idea. Okay, and what what do you think that um, what do you think the benefits are of that beyond obviously the easier way to read it? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, basically, it's partly out of respect for the for the Japanese, and secondly, to allow the Japanese to 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 read the book, just simply for that reason, because a lot of Japanese. As far as I'm aware, most Japanese don't speak English, and I'm sure some of them will be curious to know um, to read the text. So it just gives them the opportunity. And I think it looks nice also aesthetically to have the, the English alongside the Japanese. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I think the design of the book is, is very uh, well done. And I think it's more effective as a coffee table size book where it becomes almost like a a personal treasure for the person that owns it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So to me, it's, it's an, it's an art piece. It's, it's the kind of piece you want to have on your coffee table. Um, you want to see it on your shelf. You want to refer to it now and again, um, not just in one sitting. Um, yeah. Let's uh, I talked about going back and revisiting the process of, of getting the book done. Um, when you were first in Tokyo and you said you were getting frustrated without getting permission and having to, you know, like waiting and waiting and, and not getting any easy answers. Um, 
were there a few key people that helped you navigate the Japan Sumo Association and some of the different uh, Beya, you know, the stables and mm-hmm. yeah. take us through that process and what you had to do to maybe get the first knock on the door opened. And then I guess, step-by-step, step, you were able to go to more places. Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning, it was very, very difficult to, to gain access and to have permissions um, to publish any of the photos I took. Mm-hmm. I first approached photographers, mm-hmm. uh, photographers who I'd met in the stadium who were photographing sumo, obviously with permissions, mm-hmm. but none of them wanted anything to do with me. Then I approached journalists. They wanted nothing to do with me. Um, I did some research on the internet as to who I can approach. I approached a, a few more people. They they also did weren't interested in helping me. So um, I was struggling to to gain access. Um, and then I went to the Sumo Association Association directly on three occasions. They didn't want to allow me to to take any photographs or and they said they're not going to give me any permission to photograph mm-hmm. um i think because i understood that you need to be a member of the kisha club with, which is a japanese photographic association in order to have the right to to take photos of sumo um and also i don't think they wanted westerners prying into the industry because they never know the motives Mm-hmm. Um, I explained that I was a, a sports fan and my photography is not for um, press purposes. It's more artistic, but, mm-hmm. you know, whether they believe it or not is another thing. Um, so then I was really, really stuck. Um, how, how long approximately were you stuck to not, not getting any progress uh, on realizing this might happen about a year and a half a long year and time. a half yeah yeah that's partly why i did the the other book tokyo graffiti in between because at least i thought at least i can uh, be productive and have one book come out of all my efforts mm-hmm. um so I, and there was a, a a period where i i just i ran out of ideas i didn't know what I could do next. I was always optimistic that I manage and I didn't want to be defeated. And suddenly um, it was a contact of mine had been introduced to another contact who could potentially give me access to the sumo industry. And it was, um, I had a meeting with him. Initially he had no intention of, of giving me access but he liked my photographs and he liked my idea of the book. And uh, two weeks later, I got a call and said, look, I'll get you in. Um, meet me at this place and let's go for it. So it took a long time, but I was granted access. And then um, after being granted access, I then needed permissions from the Sumo Association to publish the photographs I, I had taken. Um, and partly because my my contact was friends of of high up people within Yokozunas and other people, it made it very easy to get permissions. But and I got ninety percent of my photographs uh, accepted. So how did um, 
how did they basically scrutinize the pictures? Were you showing like like uh, five photographs a day or like a hundred at a time? And then like, what was the process with that? Yeah, I, um, I showed around, let's say 10 to 15 each time. Um, and we, we had to send faxes over and show the photos within the faxes. Um, and they would accept or reject. If they rejected, I never understood why some photos were rejected. Okay. I was told not to ask or question what, what they what they did. And, and uh, was this a was this a committee that was deciding or one one person? I don't know. The facts were sent to the Sumo Association, so I don't know if it was one person mm. or if it was a whole committee. Okay. And uh, one more question about that. Um, were they aware that this is for a potential book project and then these photos were possibly on hold for, you know, X number of months or years and they sort of had a shelf life? They, I, I was fully transparent. So I, I, okay. I told them it was for a book project. Um, and I didn't know, I didn't discuss any shelf life, but I, I thought that I may publish the book fairly soon after getting permissions. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. And then I was told I need to ask for permissions again. And when I went for permissions again, I had some more f- photos that were accepted previously refused. Sounds pretty complicated. It is. It's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult job it's expensive as well it's time consuming but i've done it i achieved it okay congratulations on getting your patients tested but also coming through successfully in that regard thank you my, my um, patients were certainly tested but yeah i can't remember if i mentioned the years of the book when you were actually in tokyo for yeah uh, t- for the listeners 2015 to 2017 Mm-hmm. was the period of time that you were actually once you got permission, right? Then you started in 2015. No, I started before I got permission. Okay. Because I, I, I could enter a few stables mm-hmm. um, to take photographs. And and I was specifically told that there's no way to publish these photographs unless I approach a sumo association. So at least I could take some photographs to get the ball rolling. And when you visited some of the stables, were you given like a, a day pass with your name or something? Or uh, how did no, they like? How do they let you in? I turned up with two bottles of sake, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it. It worked with some stables, and it and it didn't work with others. I think if I turned up with a sake and spoke Japanese, mm-hmm. that more of them would have been accommodating, but. Um, it, it worked in a, in a few stables. I think um, I must have tried around 25 stables and I, I got access to, to 10 stables. But I, and so, tell us, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, tell us where, where, where those stables are. Um, the ones that I, I got access to uh, all in Ryogoku. Um, okay. Fujishima, no, Fujishima is not in Ryogoku, it's nearby, but Hakaku Stable, Kise, Azumazeki, um, Musashigawa, and a couple more within uh, Ryogoku, which is not far from the main stadium. 
So you were basically focused on Tokyo for your yeah. uh, your work. Yes. Did you visit other cities um, for stables? I, I was tempted to go to um, Osaka, Nagoya, Fukuoka, um, which is where they hold the other main tournaments. Um, I, I simply I didn't have the opportunity to go because the tournaments weren't being held at the at the right time when I was in Tokyo. Plus, um, I thought because since Tokyo is the epicenter of sumo, mm -hmm. I'll make this book specific to Tokyo. Because otherwise, if I start traveling, it may dilute the impact of, of, of the book being Tokyo-centric. Okay. Of those, of those visits to 10 stables in, in Tokyo, mm -hmm. can you give us sort of a sense of a, a typical day of what you did, how long you were there, how much time you might have been actually shooting, how much time you might have just been watching with your eyes? What, mm -hmm. what was your basic process? Um, basically, I spent on average around two hours in the stable. So I'd walk in um, just as they commence training, and the stable master would tell me exactly, he'd point to a spot where I need to sit. Mm -hmm. And once I'd sit in that spot, it was encouraged that I don't move <laughs> too much. I don't talk and I don't click the camera too much. Mm -hmm. so I basically had to be a fly on the wall. The issue, there were two issues with that. Firstly, I wasn't, there was no cushions. Uh, the Japanese are okay with sitting on the floor. It was very, very difficult for me. My back was, after 30 minutes, was aching. Mm -hmm. So I was struggling to photograph for that reason. And secondly, I, I could be placed in a spot which wasn't conducive to taking the kind of geometric photographs I like to take. Okay. So um, I had to go quite often. And if I was fortunate enough to be in the, in the located in the right place where I could take photographs, I needed the fortune of capturing the right shot. So the sumo wrestlers needed to do the kind of things I'd want them to do to make the shot um, aesthetically beautiful. Were you able to visit the same uh, certain stables like several days in a row or? Yeah. Is that, yeah. That's sort of what you're referring to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, so I, I, I'd go there. I'd spend two hours there. I'd come home. I'd analyze my shots and I'd see what I liked. If I liked any shots, I'll try to improve upon them. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything missing, I, I, I just work out what I need to do next time to, to capture all that I wanted to do within the stable stables. But there wasn't much flexibility in getting them to pose in certain ways, right? Most of the time, no, they I, had pretty strict. They had pretty strict um, schedules of their own, and then following the uh, following the headmaster and whatnot, the stable master. Absolutely, I, I was. It was clear that I shouldn't disturb them during training. Mm. Um, plus, also, I don't really like uh, wrestlers to pose. I'd, I'd rather catch them candidly. Mm -hmm. Um, because if it's, if it, unless I'm taking the odd portrait, which I did, but when a viewer looks at my photo, I'd rather they have a sense that they were there experiencing what I experienced mm. instead of a, a contrived shot, which is not as real as um, a candid shot. 
Did, did you have a favorite stable in terms of um, just like everything seemed to go better there and you had maybe a better rapport with the stable master and just you felt more comfortable and maybe there was better lighting at one place or just like a lot of different things seemed to work better, uh, making it easier for you? Is that is that a possible um, scenario that you experienced? Yeah, I found the um, Kisei and the Azuma Zeki stables um, mm -hmm. quite accommodating towards me, um, partly because in um, in Kisei, some of the wrestlers, there's one in particular from the Philippines, and there was, a, I think, Gagamaru. There were two wrestlers who could speak English. Mm -hmm. um, so I could interact with them. And the fact that I could interact with them after the after the training session warmed it to me. So I, I, be, be, I, I was more accepted in, in Kisei. And Azuma Zeki didn't mind me, no one there could speak English, but they didn't mind me sitting there taking photographs. Uh, I turn up, they'd let me in, and they kind of, they seemed to quite enjoy having me there. So it was no issue. Hmm. Um, with Hakaku for, and Fujishima, I had to go with, with, with someone else who speaks Japanese and I had a limited amount of time uh, in which to photograph. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think is the biggest thing you learned uh, throughout this project? Or maybe there's a couple of things you, you'd rather highlight than only one thing. Mm -hmm. Um. The thing I that really caught my attention was um, when I was surrounded by these sumo wrestlers, I began to appreciate how how masculine, how tough these guys are. I mean, these guys are real warriors. When I saw them on TV, I thought, okay, these guys are a bit overweight. Um, and maybe it's like an opportunity for overweight people to to do a sport, but these guys are so disciplined. They're so determined. They're, they're hungry for success. They train really hard, um, and I was just impressed with these wrestlers. I, I, yeah, it was just a, a pleasure to be around such such masculine males. <laughs> And that, that's the thing that caught my attention most. And I, I tried to capture that within my, within my photos. You know, one, one thing I thought the book did a really nice job blending was the photographs from the stables. And sometimes you shot outside the stable, like the local convenience store, or hmm. there's a shot from the back of a one wrestler waiting and waiting at the counter at a McDonald's. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a pretty clever idea to have that. Um, so you take more of these minimalistic, uh, smaller scale places, and then you're at the Kokugi Con with, you know, thousands of people. Mm -hmm. um, how different is it is the challenge of capturing uh, both the individual aspect of sumo with the whole, you know, big screen kind of like movie style, um, you know, just broad, massive size elements? Um, when you say the massive size elements, do you mean like the, the stadium? Or? Right, the, 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 but the, the whole scene, the scene at large, you're trying to capture, I think, the the, the crowd, but also mm -hmm. the traditional elements of the mm -hmm. ceremonies, and even just individual wrestlers 
you're juggling a lot of things at the at the at the at the stadium. I think. Yeah. Well, you, I you show, were. You were. Yeah, I was. Um, I want. I wanted to show um, a cross section of of things. Um, I think, like, out of my ninety odd photos, I think the viewer would want to see ninety or eighty different aspects of sumo because it's very easy to see what goes on in the stadium. You can see it on TV. So what was more important was the things they can't see, but then I wanted to, to balance it out with, with the ceremonies um, and the, the actual, the bounce, and to show how grand the Kokukikan Stadium is. Um, and then also to show other aspects beyond the stable and beyond the stadium where like if um, if you walk around Rio Goku for the day, you'd often spot sumo wrestlers hanging out on their bicycles in McDonald's um, and in various spots within the the area. So I actually rented an apartment right next door to Hakaku Stables, so I could be as close as I could to the wrestlers in the hope of of capturing good shots when they're out and about without annoying or disturbing them. Okay. If you were to narrow it down to say four or five favorite photos in mm -hmm. the book, mm -hmm. can you, can you list a few of them uh, and explain why they're at the top of your list? Mm -hmm. Um. One of my favorites is of the, the wrestlers in Hakaku stable doing the Matawari. Matawari is um, 180 degree splits. So they do the splits and have their stomachs on the ground. Um, I, I just couldn't believe how flexible these wrestlers are, almost like ballerinas. Mm -hmm. So I was very lucky to capture a really gorgeous shot of that. Um, and then when I, I think the obvious one is when I caught Okinomi on a skateboard, uh, <laughs> the camera was in my backpack, I mm -hmm. pulled it out, the, the settings were all wrong, so I adjusted the settings just in time to catch him before he got off the, the skateboard. Mm -hmm. And I caught, a, a, once again, a beautiful shot. Um, now, if he were to get off the skateboard, I wouldn't ask him to go back on so I can take a photograph because I'm trying to be as candid as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, those were two great shots. Um, and another one was when a, a sumo wrestler threw salt in the air and managed to capture the whole of the white streak from the hand to the, to the dojo. So that, mm -hmm. that's another one I really liked. Um, and I, I, I saw Aurora, Aurora Santoshi, walking around the, the streets. Now, he is, was the biggest um, wrestler of all time. I think um, Konishki was 287 kilograms at his peak, and Aurora was 288 at his peak. And um, I saw him, he was talking to a female friend from Russia, who was about... Mm -hmm around, I guess, 50 kilos, around five times smaller than him. So I captured them together, and I really, really liked that, that shot. 
Um, I was fortunate to, to capture that. And then, um, yeah, there are two wrestlers walking around the street in, in Rio Goku, just wearing their mawashi, bare-chested. And I thought that was a funny, a funny shot. So I captured that. Um, yeah, those are five that I really liked. Okay, thank you for those details. Um, in in the time before and after the Okonomi shot, did you learn if how frequently he was on the skateboard and perhaps you were lucky that day to be in the same area or was that a major hobby of his? Well, I lived right next door to Hakaku stable and I never I never saw them skateboard before. I mean, they they tend to go out to to recover from their training sessions. Mm -hmm. Um Maybe someone gifted them the skateboard. I, I just saw him use it once, and that was that. Okay. The book Sumo was published in the UK in 2022, a couple mm -hmm. months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, what has been the response uh, from the media and you know people that bought the book for themselves or for presents? Have you what What are some of the things you've heard about it? Uh, yeah, so far from, from my friends who have seen it, I don't know if they're being polite or not, but everyone seems to love the book. They love the photography. They love the narrative. Um, they love the feel of the book. I think Am and I did a great job in, in printing, printing the book. Um, what was your other question? Sorry, you had two questions there. Uh, oh, I... Uh what was the reaction to the book? I, I guess what was the reaction like, and how are they, what are the things you're hearing of like general comments about the book? Well, okay. So the general comments are, are all positive. I mean, people, people love, love the photography and also all of those who, who have, who have commented on the book, they found the book very, very insightful because they never knew most of these aspects of sumo. Mm -hmm. um, and also the press it's, it's generated a hell of a lot of press publicity it's, it's been in CNN the Daily Mail the Times so the press have caught onto it uh, also the Spiegel uh, you did a very you did a fantastic review on um, Japan Forward thank you very much for that very very nice writer Thank you. Um, so it has caught on and it's generated a lot of publicity, which I'm sure will help to to generate sales. Lord K2, thanks again for joining the podcast. I really appreciate you sharing your insights about sumo, your passion for photography, and how you went about making this very interesting book. Listeners, thank you again for joining us. And please follow us on Twitter at SportsLookJP. JP.